This episode of Trapital is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Dice. Okay, so you want to go out. You want to go see a concert, head to the club, check out a festival, and you got to get tickets. But that's where the pain starts. You got to try to get a ticket before they sell out. You get hit with surprise fees at the end. You got resellers charging you insane prices. And then, even if you get a ticket, you got the stress of trying to organize your friends to come with. Dice does it differently. Their platform connects the best venues, promoters, and artists to the fans who truly care about live music and culture. Their app has the easiest interface on the planet, meaning fans can check out in seconds, and this is a company that actually dedicates time to R&D, strategy, data analysis, basically the stuff that modern companies are supposed to be doing. Artists play to more packed out crowds, venues get more repeat customers, and fans get to witness some of the best live shows out there. Dice is so easy to use and so bullshit free, it's kind of weird that no one else has followed suit, but so far, they haven't. If you want to know more, check out Dice FM. That's D-I-C-E dot F-M, or just download the app. 13 Management could um, have access to the books of Big Machine. This was subsequent to uh, Scooter Braun acquiring Big Machine and obviously the hoo-ha that then took place with Taylor being very upset that this uh, gentleman, Scooter Braun, had acquired her masters. At a certain point, November 2019 to be precise, 13 Management, Taylor Swift's management company, had access to Big Machine's financial information, presumably with a view to theoretically reacquire her masters. The music she made, it, it looked like a discussion took place at that point. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is about Taylor Swift. The run that she's on right now is rare territory for a successful pop artist. We're talking Beatlemania, Michael Jackson, right after Thriller, right around the time of that Victory Tour, and maybe, maybe Beyonce, right around the time of her Coachella performance. But we're talking only a handful of artists that have ever reached these levels, and we're seeing it with Taylor's massive tour numbers, and we're also seeing it with these re-recorded albums that are continuing to top the charts, which is one of the core pieces for the conversation that we're having today. I'm joined by Tim Ingham, who runs Music Business Worldwide, and one of the big pieces that he put out this summer was a deep investigative piece that digs into the full picture behind all of the drama, all of the trading of hands that happened with Taylor Swift's original Masters recordings. I recommend if you haven't already, check out Tim's work on this. We'll link to it in the show notes. But from a high level, he unearthed some details about what things were said in NDAs and what may or may not have been disclosed to particular parties. But he also shares some fascinating stats on the performance of Taylor's re-recorded albums and also the original albums to give us a clear picture of who made out and which stakeholders, whether it's Scooter Braun and Ithaca Holdings and now Hive or Big Machine Label Group or Shamrock Capital or Taylor herself, where all of those various stakeholders stand. This is an industry that's driven by the superstars and there's no bigger superstar right now to dig into than Taylor with all the fascinating business moves and aspects that she's been able to make. So let's dive into it. 
Hope you enjoy it. All right. Today, we're going to talk about Taylor Swift, who has been having one of the biggest years that I've seen a artist have in my lifetime. You look at everything that she's done this past few years, this epic run, the tours, the record sales, the streams. And here to break it all down with me is Tim Ingham from Music Business Worldwide. And Tim, I got to ask you, have you seen anything like this before? Like this particular moment that we're in with Taylor Swift, when you think about the record sales, the press, the tour results, have you seen anything like this? I mean, not in my adult lifetime. Uh, you know, she's being spoken of in the same breath as sort of Michael Jackson and the Beatles at this point. Um, and of course, the Beatles never really managed to fulfill their touring at, at, at potential because they had to give it up because they couldn't hear themselves play. But uh, this is different. This is a different era, no pun intended. And, and she's kind of fulfilling everything that a megastar could potentially fulfill at a time where we as an industry keep saying to ourselves, the age of the megastar is over. So it's like a really interesting disparity going on. Right. We've been seeing for years, the whole concept of monoculture, everyone thinks that it's over. And in some ways there's certain stats that can show that there are, I think it may be hard to have the same type of impact that let's say Michael Jackson may have had right around that time of thriller and the victory tour and all that. And even going back to Beatlemania, but I mean, Taylor Swift, on paper, this tour is going to make a billion dollars. Millions of people are going to see it. And if you look at the resale prices for what these prices are going for on the secondary market with all of the demand, this could be a two to three billion dollar tour if you were to calculate those numbers. I have a bit of a theory. I haven't sort of prepared too much for this, but I was thinking as I was out in the run today and I was having a think. I have a bit of a theory about why she's managed to do it and also the, the double edged sword of her career timeline. And so if you think that Taylor Swift, I think um, she started releasing music 16 or so years ago, something like that. So we're pre-streaming. We're probably, you know, post-peak CD, but we're into download. And it's fair to say it was, um, I don't want to say easier because the music industry has never been easy, but, but, but there was arguably more opportunity to amplify yourself in what you brilliantly termed as the monoculture there in that era. So what we're seeing now, after lots of fantastic songs being written and recorded, obviously some stunning uh, marketing decisions, self-branding decisions being made, um, is we're seeing an artist who everyone's uh, mums and dads knows the name of, probably knows a couple of tunes. Most people's kids know the name of, uh, and, and obviously her contemporaries, as in age-wise, uh, as fans, also know the name of. So she's benefited greatly from establishing her artist brand at a time when there was not quite the atomization of listening and fandom, as you've talked about lots on this podcast, uh, uh, in that in that download era. However, this is where the double-edged sword comes in. And I know you're going to ask me about this stuff in a bit. But um, because she was signed in the download era, her label, Big Machine at the time, had more leverage uh, to place her into, a, at the time, a fairly quote-unquote traditional record deal than they would have had had she emerged today at this time when the monoculture is being shattered by every, you know, 100 and 120,000 or whatever, 100,000 or 120,000 tracks being uploaded a day, depending on which stat we're looking at. Um, 
And and I feel that that you know she needed a record company when when she was signed to get her on the radio, especially country radio. She needed a record company when she was signed, arguably to get to the front of the iTunes homepage and to make her a global proposition uh, at a time when streaming hadn't connected uh, all of the territories in the world that it, that it now has. And what that ultimately led to was her not owning her own uh, masters, her own recorded music rights. Um, and this is this gets complicated, but uh, or having any possibility as a let's talk about Taylor, the teenage artist, not the superstar that she became, having any vis- visibility or possibility of getting those rights back. So on the one hand, the download era really helped her accelerate this megastar brand that is now continuing to pay dividends because she's made so many great decisions and written so many great songs. However, also placed her in a position where her record company effectively signed her rights, uh, the ownership of her rights in perpetuity forevermore, which led to all of the fallout that was to come. Um, so it's it's interesting on with with one hand, giveth the download era with the other hand, taketh away. Right. And it's one of those cases where she does this multi-album deal. I believe it was six albums with that first deal that she ends up signing. Right. When she's a teenager, the family moves from Pennsylvania to Nashville in order to help Groomer to become this. But she's de-risked after that first album. Teardrops on my guitar. I think that was the first single that she had had. It's completely de-risked. So everything from Fearless, Speak Now, and the album since then, that's all the record label making plenty of money from there. And I know we'll get into some of the ownership and some of the factors that were there with the record label. But to fast forward a bit, we're now in 2023 and there's been a few things that have happened since then. So she released her last album under the Big Machine label group deal in 2017. That was the Reputation album. She then after that is in a position to essentially be a free agent. We, there's all that discussion about, okay, well, is she going to resign? She has the conversation with Scott Borchetta, who was running Big Mission label, label Group. There was some back and forth about what it would look like for her to retain ownership of her masters. And I feel like this was the start of a lot of the interest of where things were for Taylor, because that was also kind of a weird period for her. I felt like that drama that had happened with Kanye West and everything there was a bit tough for her from a career perspective, but everything else has been up and up just in terms of all of the drama that happened with whether it was Scooter Braun or any of the other stakeholders that she's been in play with. That has now led her to be in this position to re-record these albums, have this massive tour. And like you said, I think there's a number of artists who are at this superstar level that are also having massive tours right now. But Taylor's is clearly at another level from all of these factors. And with that, I think it's a good time to chat a little bit more about some of the research that you've done. Of course, we've seen people have discussed this and both Taylor, Scooter, and others have done interviews, but you were able to get some really interesting insights that I recommend if you're listening to the podcast, check out the work that Tim has released on Taylor Swift's master's ownership and some of the numbers and the revenue generation there on music business worldwide. But Tim, let's first start here. What inspired you to do the deep dives that you've done on Taylor? It was a four year anniversary was coming up, right? That, that, that was part of it because I knew that that would, uh, you know, be a nice intro to, what I managed to get my hands on and discover. But ultimately, 
the hook into it all, as often happens with any form of journalism, call it what you want, and analysis, investigative journalism, uh, is I I got hold, I obtained a document. And that document was an NDA that was signed between, uh, I believe, Scooter Braun on the uh, Ithaca side, and it was signed by a gentleman called Jay Shodies, who worked for 13 Management, now retiring, representing Taylor Swift. And that NDA was very simple. It was only a few pages, maybe five, seven pages. And it basically, in a nutshell, said that 13 Management could um, have access to the books of Big Machine. This was subsequent to uh, Scooter Braun acquiring Big Machine and obviously the hoo-ha that then took place with with Taylor being very upset that this uh, gentleman, Scooter Braun, had acquired her master's. Uh, so it meant, as far as I could see, and as I said, it was a very, very simple NDA that at a certain point, November 2019 to be precise, 13 management, Taylor Swift's management company, had access to Big Machine's financial information, presumably with a view to acquire. I don't want to say reacquire because, as we discussed, she never actually owned them in the first place, but but um, um, you know, a bit of a semantic trick, but theoretically reacquire her masters. The music she made, it it looked like a discussion took place at that point. And what was particularly interesting about that to me is it ran counter. It it was contrary to uh, claims that Taylor Swift herself had made publicly, which um, I'm sure we're going to get into. But one of them was her team never signed an NDA to have a discussion to to buy back her or acquire her masters. Well, that I had the NDA, it was signed by Jay Shodi. So that was that was not correct. I'm not going to say untrue because I'm sure we're going to get into theories around what she knew and didn't know. And but 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 it was not correct. Um, and the second thing was she also said very famously uh, publicly, I think this was at the uh, Billboard Women of the Decade speech. I think so. But um, it may have been, uh, uh, forgive me, in a letter she sent out to, to fans after Shamrock ended up acquiring her rights. Uh, from Scooter Braun. Uh, she claimed that there was a, um, a clause in, in an NDA that had been put forward by Ithaca that was unsigned by her team that said basically she wasn't allowed to mention Scooter Braun ever again. She couldn't criticize Scooter Braun ever again. And she basically had to say what a swell guy Scooter Braun was for the rest of her life. Well, I had a signed NDA from November 2019 from both parties. It had no mention of any reputational guarantees for Scooter Braun. So so that bit just confused me, in all honesty. Um, But it also showed that there was a potential deal or potential discussion that took place between those two parties subsequent to her masters being acquired by Scooter Braun. So that was really the the thread that I then began to pull to find more and more out about, you know, this this situation and, and a narrative that had been... Uh, amplified at the time where there were holes from my perspective and from the evidence that I had, there were holes in the narrative. What do you make of that? Because you were in many ways, one of the few sources that's putting this information out that isn't from someone that is trying to defend themselves necessarily. There's a lot of gray area in this. Some people could have a generous interpretation of, oh, was there some earlier version of a draft that was then reacted to? Is there a disconnect between what someone on Taylor's team saw versus what Taylor herself saw? But what do you make of this? Well, I guess inherent in your question there is what my own agenda is and what's driving me. Um, 
that's quite simple, I think. Uh, music business worldwide, hopefully, as you said, calm words about it before. We've been we've been built on truth and accuracy, and and in depth reporting on um, material financial transactions and achievements in the music industry. Right, that's basically it. And we talk about lots in the business. I, I've heard you talk about this. You know, we talk about the the huge artist catalog sales, right? And we talk about the biggest one to date, you know, I'm sure it rolls off the tip of both of our tongues, is Bruce Springsteen is around 500, 550 million Encompass Music Publishing and Encompass Recorded Music. That may be top this year. We'll see. You know, the rumours of Sony buying 50% of the Michael Jackson catalogue for more than that. Rumours, which Music Business Worldwide has, has nodded to, that Queen may be sold and that might be bigger. But when I sort of stopped and thought about this Taylor Swift one, right, and I subsequently found out that it eventually went for four hundred and five million dollars to Shamrock. But in the first instance, you know, the the, the it was valued at one hundred and forty million by Scooter Braun. My sources tell me, but the the big machine package went for three hundred million. Like just on paper, in 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 the music business reporting sphere, in the trades, in the trades, this is a huge story. It's a huge business story. But the whole narrative was kind of ushered over to like TMZ and the Daily Mail and like we never really got a chance to actually stop and say what are the facts because this is a massive deal with huge ramifications a huge transaction to use that unemotional word for the business and so once I got hold of that NDA that was the first time where I thought right well there's more to this tale it doesn't mean that one person is moral and one person is immoral and all of this uh you know ridiculous polarized arguments that take place on X, as we must now call it, and other platforms, which is where this story lived. It was like, no, there's a place for this story where there's thousands of words of reporting and there's financial analysis. And actually, at the time, this was completely missed because we all got drawn in, myself included, to the Taylor, Scooter, Shamrock, you know, Scott Boschetta human saga, when actually there, there, there was a much more, I frankly, I think a much more significant saga going on which was the buying and selling of these incredible rights and how increasingly popular they had become. That's a great point because that's one of the things that stuck out to me about your reporting. And just to repeat the stat that you had shared, if we break it down, Scooter's Ithaca Holdings buys Taylor's master's recordings for a valued price of 140 million. Then less than two years later, sells it at a price of 300 million. Or not, or, or three hundred million dollars. So more than two x of the growth for the same asset itself. What do you make of that yeah, jump? So, so uh, for people who who haven't read it, I, I, I believe, and I'm running the numbers here, but Scooter Braun and Ithaca Holdings bought Big Machine for three hundred and thirty million. That included Big Machine's um, master side. It also included the smaller publishing company. And within that, according to very, very reliable sources, uh, they valued the Taylor Swift albums at 140 million. So, you know, close enough to half of the entire deal was was around the Taylor albums. He then sold those for um, a, a, a total figure that was 265 million dollars more uh, uh, 18 months or so later to Shamrock. I believe that ended up being a total of 405 million dollars that he sold them for. Um and again, it's very difficult because I just want to talk about the business side of these things, but implicit in all of the questions and discussions is who was right and who was wrong. And I'll go back to what I said uh, earlier in our discussion about the download era giveth and taketh away because she didn't own these rights. 
Um, Scott Borchetta claims that he wanted to do a deal with Taylor Swift and her team whereby she would get all of those rights back. She claims the deal was she makes an album, she gets an album back. He claims that they were going to do a deal where they give her all the old albums back, but effectively to re-sign. So there's not really much difference between their two stories, if if I'm being frank. Um, but she wanted the freedom to own her future masters. And one of the things that you have to take your hat, even if you don't like Taylor Swift's music, which I do, members of my family definitely do. Reputation's my favorite album. But um, even if you don't, you have to take your hat off to the risks she takes, not just creatively, but the risks she took to bet on herself and to bet on these re-records is astonishing. And the fact that it's now paying off so astronomically with this era's tour and, you know, Taylor Mark II, the adult Taylor, like you just, you have to be wowed by that. But again, if we go back to the the, the, the minutiae, the, the, the granular detail of Scooter Braun buying these rights, well, the rights were on the marketplace. She had the chance to get them back. She decided not to do that. And it's unfortunate. I hope the, the only, I guess, fully immoral part of this, and I'm sure we're going to get some, told off emails about this later but the only fully immoral part of it is the deal she had to do because that was the that was the epoch of the music business that she was in 16 years ago so so that that's the only bit where where i look back and think like yeah but if i'm big machine i'm coming back and i'm saying yeah but we had to take a heck of a financial bet on this person and i'm sure you know the stats nine out of ten artists in that era that that a label like big machine would have bet on failed so it's a it's 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 a dicey problem but it's complicated by the fact that when she signed that deal with big machine it was not the same music industry as we're talking about in 2023 agreed there and i do want to separate the drama piece of the conversation for a bit and talk specifically about the transaction because that piece that you talk about with the ithaca sale first with big machine and then with shamrock the details there is that Taylor Swift's catalog, or the master recording rather, was valued at $140 million, the initial deal. And then less than you know, roughly a year and a half later, that then sells for much more money and actually then has a valuation of much closer around 300 million, as I believe was in the numbers that you shared there. So I know that there was a lot that did change. So, in sorry, Dan. That, that 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 number is, I believe, four oh five in total, because there was an earnout. It's a bit complicated, but there was an earnout for for Scooter Braun and Ithaca. So if it hits certain numbers for Shamrock, the number would enlarge to four oh five, and it eventually did. So ultimately, when we're looking back retrospectively, it actually got even higher and got to four oh five. Which again, if we start talking about the Bruce Springsteen deal, this is four oh five. This is $405 million on a single artist master catalog. Bruce Springsteen, $550 million for all of that, you know, incredible classic recorded music and music publishing. It's one of the, it's one of the biggest, arguably it's the biggest, I don't know the details of the master side of the Springsteen thing, but arguably it's the biggest artist master catalog sale in the global music industry to date maybe it'll be surpassed by queen we'll see so it's 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 a historic moment in the music industry that shamrock paid that amount of money for taylor swift's masters indeed and i think that there's a few things that played into the factor of even the short value gain of that catalog from 2018 until 2019 i think 
the streaming era, we that was just in the rapid growth phase. And you just saw the numbers yeah. continue to go up and up and up. So I think that's one thing that played to the catalog increasing its value in a short amount of time. And then Ithaca being able to generate as much revenue added that it did from that sale. Two, there was also this whole discussion piece as well about if Taylor plans to do the re-recording of her album and the timing of that, how that would impact things potentially. And we're going to get into that in a second. But I think the third thing is that the interest rates continue to get even lower and lower. So when we really started to see some of those peak prices happening for some of the catalog sales, it was right around that time because 2019, 2020, that was right around the time that hypnosis and other music investment firms were really starting to be more public about some of the moves that they were making as well. So it's been so fascinating to see this catalog and its ability to shift hands and the price changes that it's had, even before we get to the re-recordings. And we're going to get there in a minute, but that's one of the things that stuck out to me from your analysis to be able to see in real time, how much more valuable these assets got over time as we got further and further into the catalog boom. Yeah, I mean, and it's a great point that you make that there was a lot of quote unquote cheap money floating around in the music industry at the time because of low interest rates and also just just rabid interest, frankly, from the um, private equity sector and the need to catch up and to um, to acquire crown jewels. Because, you know, there's only so many Taylor Swifts and Bruce Springsteen's and Michael Jackson's in the world. And, you know, you can understand why a company like Shamrock may have put a very uh, bullish price on what they were willing to pay because they got the, you know, all of them up to various extents classics. But 1989, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is a commercial juggernaut. They took ownership of that. And I'm sure that they were willing to pay uh, a quite extraordinary multiple that you wouldn't, I'm, I'm guessing that they wouldn't probably be willing to pay in 2023 with interest rates where they are. And to your point, where the catalog has matured with the growth of streaming to the point that it has. So in, in my reporting, I, I kind of showed that like, as much as Taylor Swift is clearly aggrieved that she doesn't own her first, the, the recording rights to her first six albums, and understandably so, uh, she's winning, you know, it's going to be, I saw some of the, they may even go to a billion for this tour. It's just crazy. Um, she's also, you know, the biggest selling recording artist in the world, according to the IFPI, at a time when she's uh, released her most experiment, the most experimental albums of her career. And, you know, uh, her, her work with Aaron Desna, I think, is from The National. Those albums could have bombed, man. They could, they could that's not like your classic Taylor Swift pop music um and so again she's taken she's taken these risks and she's in a great place scooter braun to your point he bought the catalog and i'm just going to talk commercially here we, we might get back into the drama but commercially certainly scooter braun is in a fantastic place he 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 you know him and ithaca as i said made i think 265 million dollars profit off just just trading the taylor the catalog um and then he went on to sell ithaca uh, to Hybe for a billion plus. I think from what I can tell, and obviously it's difficult with taxes and you don't know precisely what the debt was involved, although I have a good idea. I'm pretty confident that he be he became a billionaire 
or is a billionaire today, and that the the, the Taylor Swift uh, catalog trading was a big part of that. The only question mark, to your point, is whether Shamrock makes its money back. And it was looking great and still looks like they probably will. But the re-records have had a dramatic impact on two of her less popular albums. And the big question is 1989, because from from the research that I've done, just this is off Luminate numbers, so it's just US. That's around 30% of her total streams in the US, just 1989. If Sorry, if we look at just the big machine catalogue, 30% of it is 1989. And if you chuck reputa- reputation in on top, you're looking at about half of the streams of those two albums. She has experimented now with three, forgive me, three of the um, big machine albums with re-records. Each of her re-records has had a negative impact, as in year on year, the streams have either gone down or they haven't grown to the extent that the re-records have grown. Um, if she re-records 1989, there's going to be some rising temperatures at Shamrock Capital, I can tell you, because that is uh, that is the killer move that she could make. And she is biding her time. Well, she hasn't made many. She hasn't put her foot wrong many times in her career. Uh, so I guess it will come when she's good and ready, but that will be another huge business story because 30% of Taylor Swift's big machine streams off one album, she re-records it, takes it to market and tells her fans to effectively suppress their love of a record that is looked at as one of the the classic pop albums. Uh, it's just going to be fascinating to see it all play out. Let's talk about the Shamrock piece of this. When they first acquired the catalog from Ithaca, there were discussions about this because the concept and the idea of Taylor re-recording was already in the ethos. There's that famous tweet from Kelly Clarkson that some say may or may not have inspired some of this. Maybe Taylor was already planning to do this herself. But when the deal happened, there was some discussion about A, whether or not the team at Shamrock knew about this, but also B, their thought about the potential impact. I think there were some quotes in there and even from your research that mentioned things like some of the stakeholders believed that, hey, anything that Taylor does is still going to be beneficial for you. You have a asset that has Taylor Swift's name attached to it. It's still going to be attached to it through Spotify or anything else. So no different than any of the market dynamics that you see, there could still be a bump the same way that if Taylor releases a new single or a new remix with Ice Spice, that then adds a bump to everything else. But your research does show different where we did see a bit of that negative impact. So I want to start there first. Did that surprise you? Did you expect to see the decline for the original versions? Um, so it's complicated. You, you, you make a great point there. So Taylor Swift had actually announced that she was going to do the re-record months before the Shamrock deal was signed. So months before Shamrock acquired her master, she had actually um, um, acknowledged that she, her plan was to re-record. I think it was with ABC. Uh, so Shamrock knew that that was the plan. And to your point, I think Shamrock bet on the idea that you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, if Taylor Swift comes out and and this is part of her marketing campaign, and let's be honest, she's always had a very personal, emotional connection to her fans. They love following her personal narrative. You saw it with the whole Kim Kardashian, um, Kanye West thing, which I'm sure was like genuinely as a human being, something pretty shit to go through. So you, am I allowed to swear on this? Oh, please do. Uh, something pretty bad to go through. All right, thanks. Um, um, but, you know, it didn't, it didn't hurt her... 
another pun for you, but it didn't hurt her reputation. She actually built a whole album off that narrative. So, um, it, it, so, so to Shamrock's point, if, if, if Shamrock's thinking, well, she's going to make this re-record the fact that her masters were quote unquote, you know, horse traded in front of her and she couldn't touch them. And that's, you know, wrenched away from her. That whole narrative is going to become part of her public narrative that will then play into, mm, well, I must go and check out the albums that she's telling me not to listen to as well. Not, you know, not that she ever put it that flagrantly. Um, what surprised me to your question, what surprised me in the research was not that she uh, uh, released Red and Fearless um, and, and re-recorded those and they, they had a negative impact on the listening of the original masters of those albums in the first year. I knew that Universal was going to chuck loads of money behind those albums in marketing money. I knew that discussions would be taking place between Universal and Spotify to make sure that those albums were being served as the primary versions of those albums for a year and other streaming services. Um, what's, so, so none of that surprised me. And actually the original Big big machine albums held up pretty well, they, 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 but there has been clearly a, a truncating of their potential listening, um, and they're significantly less popular than the re-records. So that she released those in 2021, and I was looking at 2022 annual data. But what I've been able to do more recently is look at the first half year of 2023. And we're now moving on to nearly two years after those albums were released. They are arguably no longer frontline releases. They are no longer new. They are moving into that strange, shallow catalogue world. And they're still having an impact. And I think that is what would be bothering Shamrock, is that it wasn't a one-year bang, here's all the marketing, all the fans go and listen to the re-records, but we know ultimately they're going to come back to the classics you know, the, the numbers seem to suggest that the fans are staying with the re-records. Flip that on his head, anecdotal story. My nine-year-old son absolutely loves a couple of Taylor Swift album, uh, albums and he does not like listening to the re-records, uh, uh, by which I mean I try and slip them on in the car and he spots them within seconds before the voices even come in. He says, this isn't the real one. And so I do think that Shamrock took a bet that there is going to be lots of Taylor Swift fans who either think that way or will ultimately come back round to thinking that way once they've shown their loyalty to, to Taylor. But the evidence, as I say, shows that the first two years after the re-records, the fans are remaining loyal to uh, to those to those re-records, and it is. You know, the others are doing fine, but it's definitely suppressing the potential popularity of the albums that she has re-recorded. Right. It so, is a fan. The, the originators of the album she's re-recorded. Right. And it's a fascinating question, too, because I do think that we've obviously been comparing these two assets in comparison to each other. And granted, they have different owners. I think the better question that we probably can answer for Shamrock is to determine whether or not this is a good deal. How does this compare to some of the other deals and the other things that they've been purchasing along with their shopping spree? And they've been one of the investment firms that has been quite aggressive with some of the others too, spending a lot of money yeah. to get some of the big star names. And it does make me think in some ways about the type of deal that Taylor has with Universal uh, Music Group, specifically Republic Records. This is a very artist-friendly deal she has, but if you have the opportunity to be in, with, be in business with Taylor Swift, even if it is a fraction of what you may normally get from a newly signed or an artist that's maybe one or two tiers below, you're going to do that because you see this massive impact. There's the power law and 
like you said before, these artists that were famous before the streaming era and still have gravitational pull will just get bigger. So there could be some dynamic of that with Taylor as well. The one piece of this, though, that I've thought a lot about is the order of how Taylor has released these albums, because she's clearly very thoughtful and tactile about this, as is her team. The album that she just put out was Speak Now. This was in summer 2023. It was this latest re-record. You could argue that this was likely the least popular, or I don't have the data specifically, but I would argue that this is probably the least popular of the re-record albums she has. But the one that she still hasn't released yet is the one that you mentioned is responsible for 30% of the streams, 1989. What do you think drives the decision for her to save 1989, potentially until the end? So I'm not, I'm not speaking from a place of authority here. I, I, when I was, um, <laughs> when I was silently wading through the swamp of uh, t- t- Twitter fandom during this process, uh, after the first article I wrote, which it's fair to say, not every Swifty loved, um, there was some murmurings amongst the Taylor Swift community that there was a legal issue. Um, uh, there was there was there was some kind of legal issue that she was ironing out for 1989 that she was now through. I guess a you know someone sued her for some reason because it's an incredibly popular record and that's what some lawyers do. Um, and uh, that seems to now all be finished. So that was one theory from the Taylor Swift community. To your point, when you look at sort of speak now, it is interesting, isn't it, that if Taylor Swift released uh, 1989 and maybe Reputation maybe we're through the uh, human narrative of why she's re-recording. Maybe we're past the high point. And so you, you then really speak now and it doesn't quite get the reception. But right now, maybe you strategically dig back and you get the album that maybe isn't your most popular to 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 give it the oxygen of the narrative while you make the fans wait for, for the haymaker. Um, I... I I don't know whether or not Shamrock will will make their money back on the 405. I have said that, right? But there is another factor that I haven't mentioned, and that is the time horizon for for Shamrock. If Shamrock is happy to sit on the Swift catalog for 20 years, there's no way uh, on this earth they're not making that money back. Even if she she does six re-records each of every single album, Shamrock is going to make a profit on its investment. However, if Shamrock has a seven year horizon where it, where it bought and wanted to, to, to flip, we'll have to see what they make back from the royalties plus what they make back from a sale. Um, and whether that's in, in line with, with their ambitions. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a really, really interesting story. This part of it, because it's the only part of the story, as I mentioned, you know, um, Scooter Braun's gone off into the sunset to run Hybe. Really interesting what he's doing with the quality control acquisition and building Hybe in America as sort of a, a mini major or, 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 or a company that can go toe to toe with the majors, but isn't at the same scale as them yet. Um, and then Taylor Swift is the biggest artist on earth, live and recorded. Uh, and and it just looks like that's unshakable now. Like she's in the pantheon of legends. You can't take, ever take that away from her. She's always going to be able to sell out those stadiums, and people will always speak about her in uh, alongside, certainly commercially, uh, some of the giants that we mentioned at the start of this podcast. The only question mark is Shamrock, and if I had to bet, I would say they will make their their investment back. But they took a punchy bet on those six albums, knowing that she was going to re-record. I would say so too. It's one of those situations where in the thick of it, you do just 
see all of the drama going back and forth. You assume that there are going to be winners and losers because a bit of that zero-sum mentality can make you think that. But this is one of those rare situations where, despite all of the drama, at least from a professional perspective, it does seem like every party here is ahead. Taylor is likely on track to become a billionaire off of music alone, where we've seen so many musicians, or not so many, we've seen several musicians become billionaires from doing things outside of music. She's going to be able to do it almost maybe potentially from recording music as one area and then doing it from touring as another area. It'll be fascinating to see how her career continues to play out. We already talked about how Scooter Braun himself is likely already a billionaire based on some of the findings that you've shared in MBW. And then similarly, Shamrock, I would be very surprised if they try to flip this asset in a couple of years, but if they're holding out for the long haul and we just see Taylor continue to make and make new music, it's going to be in their benefit. So it's one of those weird things where everyone made out ahead, even though from an interpersonal perspective, there were so many wounds and there was so many tough times, things that Taylor has shared, things that Scooter Braun has shared, both of them publicly. So it's very it's very ironic in some ways, but that's what makes it so fascinating to dig into. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself too often, but it all comes back to the fact that there was only one type of deal that she could do uh, all that time ago for her first record deal. And, you know, thankfully, the industry is in a place where artists can do a lot more themselves and that gives them a lot more leverage. And it means they can do all types of different deals. I mean, Taylor Swift herself, of course, now has one of the most, uh, according to uh, the rivals of Universal Music Group, Steve Cooper at Warner Music Group, particularly one of the most extraordinarily artist-friendly deals. I believe that it changes in, in territories outside the US and when it's not just streaming and there's all kinds of, kind of stuff baked in, but the basic deal is extraordinarily artist-friendly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it all comes, comes back to that it all comes back to that but then again so does taylor swift's ability over the past decade to have um blown up her brand globally when that brand started in uh in in a in a world of downloads where i mean there was in in crazy competition let's not do down the achievement she uh, she reached in, in in becoming a superstar in that era. But the statistics show, as you know, Dan, that in the pre-streaming era, it was statistically easier to become a superstar, a globally known superstar brand artist than it is today. Now, when I say easier, I am literally saying like 0.1% as opposed to 0.0001%. Or, you know, it was still infinitesimally small, um, but, but it was more possible and it was more possible to use... Um, broad channels, i.e. TV, radio, uh, 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 CDs, re record stores, and indeed uh, iTunes, which was frankly the only game in town in, in downloads, it was possible to, I'll just name four, it was possible to use those broad channels um, to basically take, take a one hit on a marketing button or a one hit on a campaign button and get yourself in front of millions, if not billions of people. So she's still benefiting from that. But in this saga, personally, she suffered from that. Agreed. Definitely. One thing that I do want to dig into is the response that you've had since putting this piece out. Because you put out the initial piece and then you had the follow-up piece, which I'm sure likely was informed by whether it was additional information or even some of the response that you've gotten. What has the journey been like for you on your end sharing something that, like you said, your job is to share what's factual, but 
no, I mean, I've been in the similar situation as well with certain topics I've covered. You know that it's going to challenge what the court of public opinion may say. How has that response been for you? Uh, well, I guess there's two sides to that, isn't there? What's been the business response? Um, what's been the response out there amongst uh, the great unwashed? Uh, so the business response is interesting. So uh, ran an initial piece, 4,000 words. It was like, let's look back. It's been four years since the the um, transaction where uh, Scooter Braun and Ithaca bought Big Machine. Here's what we've learned. Here's the NDA that I mentioned earlier. It's signed by both parties. This doesn't fit with the narrative. Here's some other facts that we found, like, her, you know, um, some stuff about her dad being on the board of Big Machine and whether or not he'd have known and how much money he made out of the deal. Just stuff that's been, you know, gone over in the past, but there was additional details. And out of that, then shook more information. So that was the first business response was like, good piece, Tim. Did you know this? Did you know this? And one of the things that came out of that was that there was a subsequent NDA. So if you're going to follow this drama, I might as well get into it. There was a November 2019 NDA signed by both sides. It was very simple, as I say, five pages or so. There was then a May 2020 NDA. Now, now the, the, uh, yeah, May 2020 NDA. Uh, now, remember that, that her catalog got sold again onto Shamrock later that year. The May 2020 NDA between Ithaca Holdings and Taylor Swift's management team, once again, um, that had more in it about what she could and couldn't say publicly. So that was very interesting to go back to the fact Taylor Swift uh, claimed on, on stage, I believe, uh, that she wasn't ever allowed to say anything bad about Scooter Braun again. Um, so maybe it's like, oh, well, maybe this is the root of where that came from. But then when you dig even into that a bit further, it's like, well, this doesn't say she can't ever go at Scooter Braun ever again. It says she can't mention the deal publicly and she can't, um, as my understanding is, you can't disparage the parties. The parties were Ithaca Holdings and 30 Management, but it said nothing of the sort that she couldn't, she can say whatever the hell she wants about Scooter Braun. Indeed, she was doing that anyway, which is why we're having this conversation today. So all of these extra details came out that led to reporting so that was business response number one business response number two um and i don't want to land anyone in it here but people were just glad that because i don't see it as both sides of the story are now out i don't think that taylor swift spun one particularly fictitious side of the story and was very you know manipulated it this this fictitious narrative into being i just think there were holes in the story and there was missing information and that was very important because it didn't just reflect what what she claimed and where the narrative went didn't just reflect on Scooter Braun as an individual. It reflected on the whole music business and and individuals operating within it. And, you know, you can make your own mind up. Uh, you know, I've had a, a mini pop, I guess, at the deal that was de facto in the music industry in the download era and Big Machine would have ended up doing with Taylor Swift. But what I'm certainly not going to have a pop at is um, from the evidence I've seen, Scott Borchetta's behavior towards Taylor Swift and Scott um, and, and Big Machine's openness to doing a deal with Taylor Swift. And it was I was glad to, you know, touch on those things again, because I think that they they all get washed aside in this uh, psychodrama that, that you mentioned. So there was that. And then there was the uh, mad, the uh, the Twitter response and the fan, the super fandom response. Uh, I guess the first thing that shocked me was, you know, BTS Army fans were treating this like it was um, Watergate reporting. And I was like, well, I'm, don't get me wrong. It's good, Dan. It's, it's, it's pretty good. But it's not it's not like 
it's not like the revelation of the century. It's just like filling in some gaps in a in a business transaction that that was sizable. Um, so that kind of found very interesting because clearly, you know, the, the, I saw a little um, a little buzz of 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 factionalization of fandoms and how they sort of turn on each other. That was kind of crazy. And then my next favorite was when all the Swifties started saying he has a long history of, you know, slagging off Taylor basically and having a go at Taylor. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that the army was saying that when I wrote a headline for Rolling Stone saying Taylor Swift is a punk rock icon or whatever, because I was being facetious because of all her business dealings. But of course, all of that gets forgotten. And you either have to be, again, this silly, binary, polarized, unsophisticated uh, swamp that is social media and this polarization of fandom. It's like you're either one or the other. It's like Scooter or Taylor. You're either a genius or you're a terrible liar. It's like you're either a brilliant, amazing businessman or, or you, you know, screw over artists. It's like no one is one or the other, like no one. And that's what makes life interesting and glorious. And, uh, and, and I wish and I hope that some of these fans, uh, as they grow older, learn to appreciate that a little bit more. And maybe, you know, the army can listen to Taylor and Taylor can listen to BTS and everyone will get along just fine. That piece is fascinating about how the factions between the fan bases just and you seeing that play out. One of the other things I saw as well on your Twitter posts was people would use that scooter emoji as the way to say scooter's name, which <laughs> I thought was yeah. ridiculous because that's, I guess, what people do. But wow. But I remember yeah. reading it and I was like, oh, man, Tim must be getting it and and in prep for this episode, I had actually went, there was some Reddit post that it posted about your article. So you have all of this back and forth, but there were some people that are actually having a pretty nuanced conversation about it, which was interesting. But all that said, so, 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 oh, go ahead. Even the, the Taylor Swift mega fans had to, you know, admit because they don't like the fact that the narrative is being corrected. I understand. Um, but I, I certainly wasn't calling Taylor Swift a liar. I was just saying what was in the public domain is not quite right. So let's put it right. But at the same time, as you pointed out in this discussion, I also showed just how crazily successful her re-records have been, which is like the coda to this whole narrative. And um, I think they like that bit. So at least there was like a fifth of the coverage that, that went down well. Right. And I like as well that you did see at least a different response from the business community, which in many ways is much more of the audience that your insights will reach and be important for. But I do think it's important that at least it did have some pickup there. So that was good to see. Um, and obviously, I mean, from my own personal interest, I remember reading it and I was like, okay, I can't say that I was necessarily surprised just because I also felt like, okay, there may be some things missing here. And I just know this industry enough, to be honest, how PR driven certain things can be. So because of that, you don't necessarily see things like this get as much breath as the sit down interview with someone that then, you know, has its certain talking points. So I did appreciate that. But it made me think of the Ticketmaster and the Live Nation situation and some of the back and forth there. Did, although these situations aren't connected, did any of this make you think any differently or raise an eyebrow at all about that situation? I mean, my quick capsule take on that situation, I guess it's got a connection to, to what we're talking about now because it's the, the Taylor Swift of 2023 
is an industry in and of itself. And it's, it's as I said, it's, it's more than anything else I think we've seen in the streaming era because this isn't just consumption. This isn't just recorded music uh, uh, sales. This is people desperate to buy tickets, desperate to buy tickets. And, and as any manager will tell you or I, tickets, selling tickets is really the acid test of if you have an artist who people care about, not just not just songs, but, but, but identity and a creator that people really care about. And I learned an appreciation just from my data analysis of like how ridiculously popular Taylor Swift has become around the globe uh, in this period of her career having taken those creative risks. Um, but I think what surprised me about the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster situation is Ticketmaster got a lot of flack because a lot of consumers have a bad impression of Ticketmaster, firstly, because they do things or have historically done things like stuck fees on the end of what, you know, you're, you're a student and you've got $50 to buy a ticket and you've, scrub you know uh, scrabbled it all together and spend it all on the artist you love and then all of a sudden you got an extra ten dollars slapped on the end of it before you check out like there's stuff like that people just don't like and so they have a reputational issue but i think the bit that was kind of missed in all of the mainstream coverage is like yeah taylor swift broke Ticketmaster because taylor swift is in the league with the beatles and michael jackson and if michael jackson was to you know uh, if we were in the era where Michael Jackson was able to do so to sell his tickets, but using, you know, the same uh, uh, consumption platforms, he'd probably break it as well because the level of interest and the level of desperation to get the tickets, plus all of the uh, underworld um, bots, etc., and the frankly organized crime that tries to harvest the ticket buying and selling process. You know, you combine those two things and Ticketmaster struggled to cope. I think, any corporation on earth would have struggled to cope. And I think that was probably missing a little bit in, in that whole discussion as senator anti-ticketmaster senators leapt on the whole thing as, as evidence that the technology was lacking. It was like, well, maybe before we look at whether the technology is lacking and look into what Live Nation spends on technology every year, it's crazy how much they spend on updating their IT systems every year. Maybe we should look into the fact that this is a once in a generation, perhaps once in a twice generation uh, phenom whose popularity knows no knows no bounds and continues to grow. For me, it was a reminder of how the core of public opinion will often sway towards the artist in most disputes that exist because naturally fans enjoy the artist. Fans don't have relationships with executives and only people in the industry likely have relationships with executives in that way, especially since executives represent big corporations and in the court of public opinion big corporations do not get that so once you think about things from that level it was a reminder of that to be like okay there is i don't even want to say another side because that isn't fair but there can be easily be an incomplete picture i'll say when these things do come up so i find the guy from a uh, certainly from, i don't i don't know him but i, I find the guy from a business perspective i find scooter braun Incredibly impressive. Some of the decisions he's made and his and his background and uh, running his club nights in his youth and then the whole Bieber story and using YouTube. And then even this, if we just remove all the emotion from it, genius. But 
I'm not buying a T-shirt with him on it. You know, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone around the world is doing that. So if we're going to acknowledge that, then let's say there's a disparity in the positive, negative emotion that's naturally going to drift towards these two characters. So I think it's a great point you make. I don't know. Maybe I'll send you a high bro, SB Projects T-shirt after this. <laughs> Well, Tim, I think if I get pictured wearing one of those, I'll be in deep trouble. <laughs> then the Swifty army will come after you. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. Right. Well, Tim, Maybe they'll find an emoji for me. I know. Right. I know. Well, Tim, this was great. Appreciate the breakdown on this. And it was great to talk through some of the nuances with you before we let you go. Was there anything else that you wanted to chat about with Taylor Swift, the re-recordings, Ithaca, Hive, any of the various stakeholders? I'll just briefly make you blush down. I think what you've done with Trapital is fantastic. I think uh, tune into many of the discussions that you have. You're always uh, on point with the topics that you pick and um, brave as to how deep you go and and, and how you refuse uh, to not move. Uh, you refuse to shy away from uncomfortable narratives for the industry. I think that's very important. And uh, yeah, keep it up, man. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure and an honor to have a, to converse with you. Likewise, no, that means a lot. And I know, you know, us just being able to chat, get to know each other better, tons of respect for everything you've built. And yeah, really, really enjoyed this one. And I'm sure we'll have future conversations uncovering all of the nuances with this industry. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups. Wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week. Yeah.